Everybody dies, don't they? Everybody comes back, don't they? Isn't that so? You tried to get into the locked drawer today, didn't you? How do the dead come back? The New Catacomb by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Look here, Berger, said Kennedy. I do wish that you'd confide in me. The two famous students of Roman remains sat together in Kennedy's comfortable room overlooking the Corso. The night was cold, and they had both pulled up their chairs to the unsatisfactory Italian stove, which threw out a zone of stuffiness rather than of warmth. Outside, under the bright winter stars, lay the modern Rome, the long double chain of the electric lamps, the brilliantly lighted cafes, the rushing carriages and the dense throng upon the footpaths. But inside, in the sumptuous chamber of the rich young English archaeologist, there was only old Rome to be seen. Cracked and time-worn friezes hung upon the walls, grey old busts of senators and soldiers with their fighting heads and their hard, cruel faces peered out from the corners. On the centre-table, amidst a litter of inscriptions, fragments and ornaments, there stood the famous reconstruction by Kennedy of the Baths of Caracalla, which excited such interest and admiration when it was exhibited in Berlin. Amphorae hung from the ceiling, and a litter of curiosities strewed the rich red turkey carpet. And of them all, there was not one which was not of the most unimpeachable authenticity and of the utmost rarity and value. For Kennedy, though little more than thirty, had a European reputation in this particular branch of research, and was, moreover, provided with that long purse which either proves to be a fatal handicap to the student's energies, or, if his mind is still true to its purpose, gives him an enormous advantage in the race for fame. Kennedy had often been seduced by whim and pleasure from his studies, but his mind was an incisive one, capable of long and concentrated efforts which ended in sharp reactions of sensuous languor. His handsome face, with its high white forehead, its aggressive nose, and its somewhat loose and sensual mouth, was a fair index of the compromise between strength and weakness in his nature. Of a very different type was his companion, Julius Berger. He came of a curious blend, a German father and an Italian mother, with the robust qualities of the North mingling strangely with the softer graces of the South. Blue Teutonic eyes lightened his sun-browned face, and above them rose a square, massive forehead with a fringe of close yellow curls lying round it. His strong, firm jaw was clean-shaven, and his companion had frequently remarked how much it suggested those old Roman busts which peered out from the shadows in the corners of his chamber. Under its bluff German strength there lay always a suggestion of Italian subtlety, but the smile was so honest and the eyes so frank that one understood that this was only an indication of his ancestry, with no actual bearing upon his character. In age and in reputation he was on the same level as his English companion, but his life and his work had both been far more arduous. Twelve years before he had come as a poor student to Rome and had lived ever since upon some small endowment for research which had been awarded to him by the University of Bonn. Painfully, slowly, and doggedly, 
With extraordinary tenacity and single-mindedness, he had climbed from rung to rung of the ladder of fame, until now he was a member of the Berlin Academy, and there was every reason to believe that he would shortly be promoted to the chair of the greatest of German universities. But the singleness of purpose which had brought him to the same high level as the rich and brilliant Englishman had caused him in everything outside their work to stand infinitely below him. He had never found a pause in his studies in which to cultivate the social graces. It was only when he spoke of his own subject that his face was filled with life and soul. At other times he was silent and embarrassed, too conscious of his own limitations in larger subjects and impatient of that small talk which is the conventional refuge of those who have no thoughts to express. And yet, for some years, there had been an acquaintanceship which appeared to be slowly ripening into a friendship between these two very different rivals. The base and origin of this lay in the fact that in their own studies, each was the only one of the younger men who had knowledge and enthusiasm enough to properly appreciate the other. Their common interests and pursuits had brought them together, and each had been attracted by the other's knowledge. And then, gradually, something had been added to this. Kennedy had been amused by the frankness and simplicity of his rival, while Berger in turn had been fascinated by the brilliancy and vivacity which had made Kennedy such a favourite in Roman society. I say had, because just at the moment the young Englishman was somewhat under a cloud. A love affair, the details of which had never quite come out, had indicated a heartlessness and callousness upon his part, which shocked many of his friends. But in the bachelor circles of students and artists in which he preferred to move, there is no very rigid code of honour in such matters. And though a head might be shaken, or a pair of shoulders shrugged over the flight of two and the return of one, the general sentiment was probably one of curiosity, and perhaps of envy, rather than of reprobation. Look here, Berger, said Kennedy, looking hard at the placid face of his companion. I do wish that you would confide in me. As he spoke, he waved his hand in the direction of a rug which lay upon the floor. On the rug stood a long, shallow fruit basket of the light wicker work which is used in the campagna, and this was heaped with a litter of objects, inscribed tiles, broken inscriptions, cracked mosaics, torn papyri, rusty metal ornaments, which to the uninitiated might have seemed to have come straight from a dustman's bin, but which a specialist would have speedily recognised as unique of their kind. The pile of odds and ends in the flat wickerwork basket supplied exactly one of those missing links of social development which are of such interest to the student. It was the German who had brought them in, and the Englishman's eyes were hungry as he looked at them. I won't interfere with your treasure trove, but I should very much like to hear about it, he continued, while Berger very deliberately lit a cigar. It is evidently a discovery of the first importance. These inscriptions will make a sensation throughout Europe. For every one here there are a million there, said the German. There are so many that a dozen savants might spend a lifetime over them and build up a reputation as solid as the castle of St. Angelo. Kennedy sat thinking, with his fine forehead wrinkled, his fingers playing with his long, fair moustache. "'You've given yourself away, Berger,' said he at last. "'Your words can apply only to one thing. 
you've discovered a new catacomb. I had no doubt that you had already come to that conclusion from an examination of these objects. Well, they certainly appeared to indicate it, but your last remarks make it certain there is no place except a catacomb which could contain so vast a store of relics as you describe. Quite so. There is no mystery about that. I have discovered a new catacomb. Where? Ah, that is my secret, my dear Kennedy. Suffice it that it is so situated that there is not one chance in a million of anyone else coming upon it. Its date is different from that of any known catacomb, and it has been reserved for the burial of the highest Christians, so that the remains and the relics are quite different from anything which has ever been seen before. If I was not aware of your knowledge and of your energy, my friend, I would not hesitate, under the pledge of secrecy, to tell you everything about it. But, as it is, I think that I must certainly prepare my own report of the matter before I expose myself to such formidable competition. Kennedy loved his subject with a love which was almost a mania, a love which held him true to it amidst all the distractions which come to a wealthy and dissipated young man. He had ambition, but his ambition was secondary to his mere abstract joy and interest in everything which concerned the old life and history of the city. He yearned to see this new underworld which his companion had discovered. Look here, Berger, he said earnestly, I assure you that you can trust me most implicitly in the matter. Nothing would induce me to put pen to paper about anything which I see until I have your express permission. I quite understand your feeling and think it's most natural, but you have really nothing whatever to fear from me. On the other hand, if you don't tell me, I shall make a systematic search, and I shall most certainly discover it. In that case, of course, I should make what use I liked of it, since I would be under no obligation to you. Berger smiled thoughtfully over his cigar. I have noticed, friend Kennedy, said he, that when I want information of any point, you are not always so ready to supply it. When did you ever ask me anything that I didn't tell you? You remember, for example, my giving you the material for your paper about the Temple of the Vestals? Ah, well, that was not a matter of much importance. If I were to question you upon some intimate thing, would you give me an answer, I wonder? This new catacomb is a very intimate thing to me, and I should certainly expect some sign of confidence in return. What you're driving at, I can't imagine, said the Englishman, but if you mean that you will answer my questions about the catacomb if I answer any question which you may put to me, I can assure you that I will certainly do so. Well then, said Berger, leaning luxuriously back in his settee and puffing a blue tree of cigar smoke into the air, Tell me all about your relations with Miss Mary Saunderson. Kennedy sprang up in his chair and glared angrily at his impassive companion. What the devil do you mean? he cried. What sort of a question is this? You may mean it as a joke, but you never made a worse one. No, I don't mean it as a joke, said Berger simply. I am really rather interested in the details of the matter. I don't know much about the world and women and social life and that sort of thing, and such an incident has the fascination of the unknown for me. I know you, and I know her by sight. I had even spoken to her once or twice. I should very much like to hear from your own lips exactly what it was which occurred between you. 
I won't tell you a word. That's all right. It was only my whim to see if you would give up a secret as easily as you expected me to give up the secret of the new catacomb. You wouldn't, and I didn't expect you to. But why should you expect otherwise of me? There's St. John's clock striking ten. It's quite time that I was going home. No, wait a bit, Berger, said Kennedy. This is really a ridiculous caprice of yours to wish to know about an old love affair, which has burned out months ago. You know we look upon a man who kisses and tells as the greatest card and villain possible. Certainly, said the German, gathering up his basket of curiosities. When he tells anything about a girl which is previously unknown, he must be so. But in this case, as you must be aware, it was a public matter which was the common talk of Rome, so that you are not really doing Miss Mary Saunderson any injury by discussing her case with me. But still, I respect your scruples, and so, good night. Wait a bit, Berger, said Kennedy, laying his hand upon the other's arm. I'm very keen upon this catacomb business, and I can't let it drop quite so easily. Would you mind asking me something else in return, something not quite so eccentric this time? No, no, you have refused, and there is an end of it, said Berger, with his basket on his arm. No doubt you are quite right not to answer, and no doubt I am quite right also, and so again, my dear Kennedy. Good night. The Englishman watched Berger cross the room, and he had his hand on the handle of the door before his host sprang up with the air of a man was making the best of that which cannot be helped. Hold on, old fellow, said he. I think you're behaving in a most ridiculous fashion, but still, if this is your condition, I suppose that I must submit to it. I hate saying anything about a girl, but as you say, it's all over, Rome, and I don't suppose I can tell you anything which you do not know already. What was it you wanted to know? The German came back to the stove, and laying down his basket, he sank into his chair once more. "'May I have another cigar?' said he. "'Thank you very much. I never smoke when I work, but I enjoy a chat much more when I am under the influence of tobacco. Now, um, as regards this young lady with whom you had this uh, little adventure, what in the world has become of her?' "'She's at home uh, with her own people.' "'Oh, really? In England?' "'Yes.' "'What part of England?' London? No, uh, Twickenham. You must excuse my curiosity, my dear Kennedy, and you must put it down to my ignorance of the world. No doubt it is quite a simple thing to persuade a young lady to go off with you for three weeks or so, and then to hand her over to her own family at, uh, what did you call the place? Twickenham. Quite so, at Twickenham. But it is something so entirely outside my own experience that I cannot even imagine how you set about it. For example, if you had loved this girl, your love could hardly disappear in three weeks, so I presume that you could not have loved her at all. But if you did not love her, why should you make this great scandal, which has damaged you and ruined her? Kennedy looked moodily into the red eye of the stove. That's a logical way of looking at it, certainly, said he. Love is a big word, and it represents a good many different shades of feeling. I liked her, and, well, you say you've seen her. You know how charming she could look. But still, I'm willing to admit, uh, looking back, that I could never have really loved her. Then, my dear Kennedy, why did you do it? 
The adventure of the thing had a great deal to do with it. What? You are so fond of adventures. Where would the variety of life be without them? It was for an adventure that I first began to pay my attentions to her. I have chased a good deal of game in my time, but there's no chase like that of a pretty woman. There was a piquant difficulty of it also, for, as she was the companion of Lady Emily Rood, it was almost impossible to see her alone. On top of all the other obstacles which attracted me, I learned from her own lips very early in the proceedings that she was engaged. My God! To whom? Ah, she mentioned no names. I do not think that anyone knows that. So that made the adventure more alluring, did it? Well, it did certainly give a spice to it. Don't you think so? I tell you that I am very ignorant about these things. My dear fellow, you can remember that the apple you stole from your neighbour's tree was always sweeter than that which fell from your own. And then I found that she cared for me. What? At once? Oh, no, it took about three months of sapping and mining. But at last I won her over. She understood that my judicial separation from my wife made it impossible for me to do the right thing by her, but she came all the same, and we had a delightful time, as long as it lasted. But how about the other man? Kennedy shrugged his shoulders. I suppose it's the survival of the fittest, said he. If he had been the better man, she wouldn't have deserted him. Let's drop the subject, for I've had enough of it. Only one other thing. How did you get rid of her in three weeks? Well, we both cooled down a bit, you understand. She absolutely refused under any circumstances to come back to face the people she'd known in Rome. Now, of course, Rome is necessary to me, and I was already pining to be back at my work. So there was one obvious cause of separation. Then again, her old father turned up at the hotel in London and... There was a scene, and the whole thing became so unpleasant that really, though I missed her dreadfully at first, I was very glad to slip out of it. Now, I rely upon you not to repeat anything of what I've said. My dear Kennedy, I should not dream of repeating it, but all that you say interests me very much, for it gives me an insight into your way of looking at things, which is entirely different from mine, for I have seen so little of life. And now you want to know about my new catacomb. There's no use my trying to describe it, for you would never find it by that. There is only one thing, and that is for me to take you there. That would be splendid. When would you like to come? Sooner the better. I'm all impatience to see it. Well, it is a beautiful night, though a trifle cold. Suppose we start in an hour. We must be very careful to keep the matter to ourselves. If anyone's horse hunting in couples, they would suspect that there was something going on. Ah, oh, we can't be too cautious, said Kennedy. Is it far? Some miles? Not too far to walk? Oh, no, we could walk there easily. We had better do so, then. A cabman's suspicions would be aroused if he dropped us both at some lonely spot in the dead of the night. Quite so. I think it would be best for us to meet at the gate of the Appian Way at midnight. I must go back to my lodgings for the matches and candles and things. All right, Berger. I think it's very kind of you to let me into this secret, and I promise you that I'll write nothing about it until you've published your report. Goodbye for the present. You will find me at the gate at twelve.
The cold, clear air was filled with the musical chimes from that city of clocks, as Berger, wrapped in an Italian overcoat, with a lantern hanging from his hand, walked up to the rendezvous. Kennedy stepped out of the shadow to meet him. "'You are ardent in work as well as in love,' said the German, laughing. "'Yes, I've been waiting here for nearly half an hour. I hope you have left no clue as to where we are going. Not such a fool. By Jove, I'm chilled to the bone. Come on, Berger, let's warm ourselves by a spurt of hard walking.' Their footsteps sounded loud and crisp upon the rough stone paving of the disappointing road, which is all that is left of the most famous highway of the world. A peasant or two going home from the wine shop and a few carts of country produce coming up to Rome were the only things which they met. They swung along with the huge tombs looming up through the darkness upon each side of them, until they had come as far as the catacombs of St. Callistus and saw against the rising moon the great circular bastion of Cecilia Metella in front of them. Then Berger stopped with his hand to his side. Your legs are longer than mine, and you are more accustomed to walking, said he, laughing. I think that the place where we turn off is somewhere here. Yes, uh, this is it, around the corner of the Trattoria. Now, it is a very narrow path, so perhaps I had better go in front and you can follow. He had lit his lantern and by its light they were enabled to follow a narrow and devious track which wound across the marshes of the Campania. The great aqueduct of old Rome lay like a monstrous caterpillar across the moonlit landscape, and their road led them under one of its huge arches and past the circle of crumbling bricks which marks the old arena. At last Berger stopped at a solitary wooden cowhouse and drew a key from his pocket. "'Surely your catacomb is not inside a house,' cried Kennedy. "'The entrance to it is. "'That is just a safeguard which we have against anyone else discovering it. "'Does the proprietor know of it? "'Not he. "'He had found one or two objects which made me almost certain "'that his house was built on the entrance to such a place. "'So I rented it from him and did my excavations for myself. "'Come in and shut the door behind you.' It was a long, empty building, with the mangers of the cows along one wall. Berger put his lantern down on the ground, and shaded its light in all directions save one by draping his overcoat round it. It might excite remark if anyone saw a light in this lonely place, said he. Just help me to move this boarding. The flooring was loose in the corner, and plank by plank the two savants raised it and leaned it against the wall. Below there was a square aperture and a stair of old stone steps which led away down into the bowels of the earth. Be careful, cried Berger, as Kennedy, in his impatience, hurried down there. It's a perfect rabbit's warren below, and if you were once to lose your way there, the chances would be a hundred to one against your ever coming out again. Wait until I bring the light. How do you find your own way if it's so complicated? I had some very narrow escapes at first, but I have gradually learned to go about. There is a certain system to it, but it is one which a lost man, if he were in the dark, could not possibly find out. Even now I always spin out a ball of string behind me when I am going far into the catacomb. You can see for yourself that it's difficult, 
but every one of the passages divides and subdivides a dozen times before you go a hundred yards. They had descended some twenty feet from the level of the byre, and they were standing now in a square chamber cut out of the soft tufa. The lantern cast a flickering light, bright below and dim above, over the cracked brown walls. In every direction were the black openings of passages which radiated from this common centre. I want you to follow me closely, my friend, said Berger. Do not loiter to look at anything upon the way, for the place to which I will take you contains all that you can see and more. I will save time for us to go there, direct. He led the way down one of the corridors, and the Englishman followed closely at his heels. Every now and then the passage bifurcated, but Berger was evidently following some secret marks of his own, for he neither stopped nor hesitated. Everywhere along the walls, packed like the berths upon an emigrant ship, lay the Christians of old Rome. The yellow light flickered over the shriveled features of the mummies and gleamed upon rounded skulls and long white arm bones crossed over fleshless chests, and everywhere as he passed Kennedy looked with wistful eyes upon inscriptions, funeral vessels, pictures, vestments, utensils, all lying as pious hands had placed them so many centuries ago. It was apparent to him, even in those hurried passing glances, that this was the earliest and finest of the catacombs, containing such a storehouse of Roman remains as had never before come at one time under the observation of the student. What would happen if the light went out, he asked, as they hurried onwards. I have a spare candle and box of matches in my pocket. By the way, Kennedy, have you any matches? No, you'd better give me some. Ah, that is all right. There is no chance of us separating. How far are we going? It seems to me that we've walked at least a quarter of a mile. More than that, I think. There is really no limit to the tombs, at least. I have never been able to find any. This is a very difficult place, so I think that I will use our ball of string. He fastened one end of it to a projecting stone, and he carried the coil in the breast of his coat, paying it out as he advanced. Kennedy saw that it was no unnecessary precaution, for the passages had become more complex and tortuous than ever, with a perfect network of intersecting corridors. But these all ended in one large circular hall, with a square pedestal of tufa topped with a slab of marble at one end of it. "'By Jove!' cried Kennedy in an ecstasy, as Berger swung his lantern over the marble. "'It's a Christian altar. Probably the first one in existence.' Here is the little consecration cross cut upon the corner of it. No doubt this circular space was used as a church. Precisely, said Berger, if I had more time I should like to show you all the bodies which are buried in these niches upon the walls, for they are the early popes and bishops of the church, with their mitres, their croziers and full canonicals. Go over to that one and look at it. Kennedy went across and stared at the ghastly head which lay loosely on the shredded and mouldering mitre. This is most interesting, said he, and his voice seemed to boom against the concave vault. As far as my experience goes, it is unique. Bring the lantern over, Berger, for I want to see them all. But the German had strolled away and was standing in the middle of the yellow circle of light at the other side of the hall. Do you know how many wrong turnings there are between this and the stairs? he asked. There are over two thousand, 
No doubt it was one of the means of protection which the Christians adopted. The odds are two thousand to one against a man getting out, even if he had a light. But if he were in the dark, it would, uh, of course, be far more difficult. So I should think. And the darkness is something dreadful. I tried it once for an experiment. Let us try again. He stooped to the lantern, and in an instant it was as if an invisible hand was squeezed tightly over each of Kennedy's eyes. Never had he known what such darkness was. It seemed to press upon him and to smother him. It was a solid obstacle against which the body shrank from advancing. He put his hands out to push it back from him. "'They'll do, Berger,' said he. "'Let's have the light again.' But his companion began to laugh, and in that circular room the sound seemed to come from every side at once. "'You seem uneasy, friend Kennedy,' said he. "'Go on, man, light the candle,' said Kennedy impatiently. "'It's very strange, Kennedy, but I could not in the least tell by the sound in which direction you stand. Could you tell where I am? No, you seem to be on every side of me. If it were not for this string which I hold in my hand, I should not have a notion which way to go. I dare say so. Strike a light, man, and have an end of this nonsense. Well, Kennedy, there are two things which I understand that you are very fond of. The one is an adventure, and the other is an obstacle to surmount. The adventure must be the finding of your way out of this catacomb, the obstacle will be the darkness and the two thousand wrong turns, which make the way a little difficult to find. But you need not hurry, for you have plenty of time, and when you halt for a rest now and then, I should like you just to think of Miss Mary Saunderson, and whether you treated her quite fairly. You devil, what do you mean, roared Kennedy? He was running about in little circles and clasping at the solid blackness with both hands. Goodbye, said the mocking voice, and it was already at some distance. I really do not think, Kennedy, even by your own showing, that you did the right thing by that girl. There was only one little thing which you appeared not to know, and I can supply it. Miss Saunderson was engaged to a poor, ungainly devil of a student and his name was Julius Burger. There was a rustle somewhere, the vague sound of a foot striking a stone, and then there fell silence upon that old Christian church, a stagnant, heavy silence, which closed round Kennedy and shut him in like water round a drowning man. Some two months afterwards, the following paragraph made the round of the European press. One of the most interesting discoveries of recent years is that of the new catacomb in Rome, which lies some distance to the east of the well-known vaults of St. Calixtus. The finding of this important burial place, which is exceeding rich in most interesting early Christian remains, is due to the energy and sagacity of Dr. Julius Burger, the young German specialist, who is rapidly taking the first place as an authority upon ancient Rome. Although the first to publish his discourse, it appears that a less fortunate adventurer had anticipated Dr. Berger. Some months ago, Mr. Kennedy, the well-known English student, disappeared suddenly from his rooms in the Corso. 
and it was conjectured that his association with a recent scandal had driven him to leave Rome. It appears now that he had, in reality, fallen a victim to that fervid love of archaeology which had raised him to a distinguished place among living scholars. His body was discovered in the heart of the new catacomb, and it was evident from the condition of his feet and boots that he had tramped for days through the torturous corridors which make these subterranean tombs so dangerous to explorers. The deceased gentleman had, with inexplicable rashness, made his way into this labyrinth without, as far as can be discovered, taking with him either candles or matches, so that his sad fate was the natural result of his own temerity. What makes the matter more painful is that Dr. Julius Berger was an intimate friend of the deceased. His joy at the extraordinary find which he has been so fortunate as to make has been greatly marred by the terrible fate of his comrade and fellow worker. Everybody dies, don't they? Everybody dies, don't they? Isn't that so? You tried to get into the locked drawer today, didn't you? So that was The New Catacomb by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, and it was uh, sponsored and supported by Gavin Critchley, who you may know, Gavin... Um, Gives me money, could you believe it, every month to do a story for you. And uh, so that's a real generosity by him. And this time he trusted me enough to pick a story and make it a surprise to him. So there you are, Gavin. I hope it's a surprise. I wanted to do something fairly classic. And to be honest with you, the first story I looked at was I got a copy of uh, Tales of Unease by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. And it's got various stories in. I think we've done, uh, I did recently, not too long ago, did the uh, horror, of, horror of the Heights from this book. And I was going to do the uh, Terror of the Blue John Gap, which is a slightly longer story and is a classic, really. Um, I, I won't say what it's about, just in case I ever do do it. But when I looked on YouTube, I found that 1,400 people, or maybe 430, but certainly a lot of people, and narrated it before and I'm actually conscious of sometimes I have people who are really great supporters of the podcast will just kind of say um you know I've, I've heard this by a couple of narrators and much as I love your work uh you know skip this one and I didn't want to do this so I wanted to pick now I haven't checked on YouTube but I'm guessing this isn't as popular a story so I am guessing that it hasn't been covered as many times but of course each of us reads in our own style and um you know, people like what they like, and some people like what I do. Some people like what uh, you know, or both. Ian does on Horror Babble, and uh, you know, Bite Size Audio, Sherlock Holmes stories. And there's quite a lot of uh, uh, people springing up. The great loss, of course, was Jasper Lestrange, who did his Encrypted Horror. Such high production values, such great stuff. And I think, and I honestly thought lovely man and I thought he's gonna burn out because he's putting so much into this and I don't know if he did burn out or what happened actually but he stopped producing them and I wish he would um wish he would come back even if he just did I wouldn't mind um you know collaborating in some way with him that would be great anyway so enough of that the new catacombs we're going to talk about uh Sir Arthur Conan Doyle very briefly we've done biogs of him before 
He was a British writer and physician. So, so Conan Doyle, he was Irish extraction, but he was born in Edinburgh in Scotland. So, but, but he lived in England. So I don't know how he identified, as we would say these days, probably British um, rather than, I don't know, would he have been English, would he have been Scots, would he have been Irish? I know these minutiae are, um, they're, they're, uh, you know, uh, arcane to many people, particularly if you're sitting in Zanzibar now listening to this thing. What difference does that make? But um, we on these islands have fought and killed each other for centuries about those divisions. So, uh, you know, it's a big deal to us, I suppose. So anyway, he was a doctor. And of course, he's most famous for Sherlock Holmes, who was born in 1859 in Edinburgh. I'd ended University of Edinburgh Medical School, like my dad, um, and received his medical degree in 1881, slightly before my dad. He began writing short stories and novels while studying medicine. In 1887, he published his first Sherlock Holmes novel, A Study in Scarlet, and ba-boom! Um, and th as they say, there was no turning back, was there? What a... And like many people who, I must think of J.K. Rowling and Harry Potter and people like this, they create these characters. And, I mean, if you think of somebody like J.R.R. Tolkien, it wasn't a particular character. But, but Doyle's Sherlock Holmes has, something about Sherlock Holmes has stuck in the, the world consciousness. It must represent something, mustn't it? Anyway... He passed away in 1913, Crowborough, in East Sussex. He was a um, volunteer doctor during the Boer War uh, at the end of the 19th century. And, of course, that is a very contentious conflict where, you know, I'm not going to be contentious, though, but read up on it if you want. If you want to be upset, and I don't know which side you'll come down on, but um, I think there are at least three sides to come down on. One of three. You could have two of three. Probably going to pick one. Anyway, look it up, the Boer War. Now, what about this story, The New Catacomb? I've read a couple of reviews. It is reviewed because, I mean, Conan Doyle is such a massive author that nearly everything he wrote has been renewed. Renewed? Reviewed. People say it's a well-constructed tale, which it is. Just the prose is so... It, you know, it has the stamp of a master. It just it's it's just beautiful to read, you know, and and there are people whose work I really like and whose language I admire, but you know th this is a workman, and I don't mean that in the back. He's a craftsman, and he and he's and the story we could we can see what's happening from about five minutes in, but that doesn't stop it working. Now, why do I say this? Well. There's a guy called Robert McKee wrote a big book called Story. He was a screenwriter, and he and he talked about um, first of all the job of so how do stories work? I've said this before. We that they have purposes, moral purposes, but we put we create as a writer. You create an avatar for the reader. The reader then sees the world as if they were that character. If it works. So you want to minimise the distance between you, the character and so the, the, the listener, the reader, is rooting for that character and identifies with them. And so when bad things happen to the character, they feel them vicariously. This is how we are human beings. This, you know, this happens to us all the time. We feel other people's emotions. And so the writer makes you feel his or her protagonist's um, 
tension. So say you've identified with the character. I don't know who you've identified with here. There are two of them potentially. What one? The, the victim, of course, is Kennedy. And a good um, Scots-Irish name there. Uh, I think Kennedy's are found both sides of the St. George's Channel in um, Ayrshire, I think, and also over in uh, County Antrim, I think. Uh, correct me on the Antrim, I'm pretty sure about... I think they're in Ballantrae. Uh, so anyway, anyway, anyway. That, that is a digression that I haven't researched, so I've probably said something wrong. Um, but uh, Ballantrae, I'm pretty sure. Now, I'm just thinking where that is. I'm going to have to look it up. Yeah, I was right. It's Carrick, um, which is in South Ayrshire. And uh, that's the Kennedys are there, you know, Balanatra, the town by the beach. So anyway, that has got nothing to do with anything, really, has it? Um, apart from the guys called Kennedy. So who is the protagonist, Kennedy or Berger? Julius Burger. You, you see, if you're listening out, you hear I called him Julius at the beginning. And I thought it would be... Um, I didn't know how German I was going to go, so I decided to go lightly German. This story interestingly was in was before published in before the first world war i think 1908 i want to say but when i check i find i was wrong it was um 1898 initially titled burger's secret and then it was it's republished as in all his stuff uh in 1990 now the interesting thing is of course i've got a sympathetic german character because the british and the germans famously got on for many centuries were great pals until uh, they weren't uh, from about 1914. So there's no uh, pre-First World War, uh, and I guess the tensions that were growing with Bismarck and all those people at the at the back end of the 1890s, in fact. Um, but, you know, you know, there'd been a lot of toing and froing in royal families and things with the Germans, and the Germans, of course, Waterloo. Of course, the British like to say it was won by the British, and it was, but it, the, they wouldn't have won without the Prussians. So... Um, so, yeah, but so I think it's interesting there's a sympathetic German character and we can, you could have one now uh, and you could have one before, but the 20th century was a bit of a, a, a dodgy time in um, Anglo-German relations, so, to say the least. But um, but it's all good now. I love German. I really love Germany. I like Germans a lot. I like the way they think. I like their souls. Let's move. So we've got the protagonist. Who is the protagonist? I think it's Julius Berger at the end. Um, but we get the feelings of Kennedy, don't we? Um, you know, we we for it to work, we need to feel his terror. Maybe that is a slight weakness in the story that it isn't totally focused because we don't like. And the moral tale is you get punished for doing bad things. And Kennedy is a narcissist, isn't he? He's 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 set up for us not to like him. He's He's bone idle and rich. The other, the German guy's a hard-working guy. He's pulled himself up by his bootstraps. We always like that. Uh, and this guy's just got everything he wants, and he and he is very cavalier in his attitude to everything, including the heart. And he just uh, went with old, young Miss Sanderson, ruined her. And those days, it would be a ruin. That would be her unable to marry. However, why didn't Julius go? I still love you, babe. Whatever's happened. I know you, you don't really think much of me, but I'm a decent bloke. And and, and in a sense, um, I'm going to skip aside to another story, which is The Dead by uh, James Joyce, which we did. And if you remember in that, old Gabriel and his wife, she her love was to Michael Fury. She loved him. I don't know if she did any kind of nookie with him, but um, 
And that means maybe the deal breaker, maybe that's the deal breaker, the nookie you can forgive. Now, I've heard it said that men um, cannot forgive physical infidelity while women struggle to forgive um, emotional infidelity. I don't know how true that is. I've never had to do either, I don't think. So I've been lucky. Yes, so, okay. The moral is bad people get punished. And he's set up to be a bad guy, Kennedy. If if we, he'd been sympathetic, you can you can have characters, you know, we can think of them, you know, uh, who aren't very nice, but we root for them. And in this case, the bad guy, we're not supposed to root for him, but it weakens what I'm trying to say in a very long-winded way, is it weakens our identity and feeling for his travails and troubles and terror when he gets locked in. We're going to feel some of that because it's not nice anyway. But it's set up. We know... I was going to say, Robert McKee, jump back, Tony. I was talking about Robert McKee, the screenwriter. He says you need to identify with the characters. Yes, I've already explained that laboriously. Then we put them in bad situations and there are different kinds and we create tension. We need to feel for the character. This is the tension. There's different ways of doing this. And one is mystery, whereby the character knows more. And Sherlock Holmes does loads of this. The character knows more than we do. So there may be a clue. There may be, well, Sherlock, we don't know what Sherlock's thinking. We know he's got something, but we don't know. And, and mystery is whereby the, the protagonist knows more than we do. That's not the case in this story. Okay. And then we have suspense, whereby we and the character know about the same, and we're walking step by step with the character. That's not the case in this, this either. This is McKee's classifications. And then we have dramatic irony. It's called some other things as well, but that is whereby... We know more than the character. And we think of Oedipus Rex. We know what he's done, he doesn't. And we watch the car crash unfolding. And that is dramatic irony. And in, that's what we've got here. So we know, and I think we're supposed to know, we're supposed to guess what's going on. But he, he's kind of too taken up in himself, really. He, I, I get the impression he doesn't really think much about other people or that people should, or he doesn't really credit them with any kind of inner mental life at all, I don't think. They're just kind of objects for him to use. Uh, and so because of that, that moral failing, he's punished, but he he doesn't suspect that Berger might be doing anything. He doesn't, he doesn't, he doesn't appear to have an inkling, and of course we got it much before, and we're like, uh-oh. But because we didn't like him, we didn't mind. But imagine if it had been um, Harry Potter or somebody we liked. It's presuming you like Harry Potter. Then we would have been, oh, no, Harry, oh, Harry, oh, no, Harry, oh, God, don't go in there. You know, it's like in the horror movies, there's something in the cellar, don't go down the cellar. And we're like, yeah, go down, because we don't like you. But we know what's going to happen. So I think, uh, so what's happening is it's a beautifully constructed story of dramatic irony. It is, I'm pretty sure Doyle expected us to get that. But he's so much of a craftsman, he wasn't. He didn't lay it on. He didn't, and, and also he didn't break the fourth wall, did he? He didn't give us a right nod and a wink to say, I know you know, you know. I know that you know that I know that you know, you know. He didn't do that. Um, and I don't think that's not, that isn't because he didn't know that. It's because he just thought, you know, he's just too subtle. He's too, too much of a craftsman to do that. I think if you wanted to do that, that would be fine. But that's a different kind of story. But this is a very simple story. This is a this is a popular story. This is gonna this is for the for the public. It's the great they're not like we literati. Um it's for just ordinary folk like me on my day off. 
Uh, I like to read ordinary stories. Uh, and I thought it was a really nice little story, so I wanted to thank Gavin. I have actually been to the Roman catacombs in Rome, surprisingly. And many years ago, um, I, I, Rome was, a, it was, it was hot, uh, lovely ice cream. Uh, nearly got robbed outside the station by a gang of little children, like little fish, who came up and there was this, um, 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 you know, I don't want to characterise it, but there was a, a rough-looking old woman who was seemed to have a Fagin-like um, power over them. And and I um, then they came and I was coming out of the tube station and they I could feel a little hand, it was like a circle around me begging, and I could feel the hands going inside my jacket for my wallet and I yelled big time, and I've got a big yell, and they scattered and she kind of called them back. And all the Italians started making tutting noises. And I'm like, are you tutting at me? But I think actually they were tutting because, the, the, you know, uh, you know what tutting is. Uh, they were, they were, you know, they were in, uh, in step with me. They were like, yeah, this is not on. And it, it disgraced them in their city. Well, you may say it's disgraced them. You may, you may think those poor starving children had every right to rob um, uh, a tourist like me. Or you may not. I'm not making any presumptions. So anyway, um, when we were there, we decided we we're going to go to the catacombs. Definitely worth going. But the hour had changed. So I didn't know the hour had changed. So I'm, we're, we're lining up, we're waiting. There's nobody there, nobody there, nobody there. Because it was an organised tour because you get lost and then you die like Kennedy. That must happen all the time. Uh, I've been to the Paris catacombs, as you know, because I wrote a story about it. Well, of course, I could have written a story without going, but I have been a couple of times. The Roman catacombs are not not as uh, macabre and, and grim as the Paris ones. They're not scary. They're historically interesting. Anyway, so because uh, I didn't realise the clock had changed in Italy, in Rome, we were there waiting for an hour, and I nearly nearly left and went away. And I think there was something about I'd also got because it was Sunday opening. It was enough, so I think we waited two hours. That actually happened to me as well in London at the Horniman Museum, in which is another great museum, Annie Horniman's museum in um, Dulwich. And uh, again, the clock had changed, but I thought it changed the wrong way. You know that fall back, spring forward, how you know which hour to put your clock in the days before your phone did it for you. Um, and I did it the wrong way, so we were two hours out. We were waiting for the museum to open, but we were two hours wrong because I'd gone back. I remember it being light so i'm guessing it was spring forward and i'd put it back so uh, i was two hours wrong i'm very you can imagine i'm very um, i'm not very good with time i'm very time i'm date blind it is a disability i deserve some kind of state benefit for it um unfortunately i have been fighting for that but nobody seems to want to give me any uh but yeah i've just I haven't got a clue about time uh i try my best but uh but and I say to Sheila, she's like, <laughs> "I've gone. It's not my fault. It's not. My, it's not my fault, mate. It's not my fault." You know. And I try to eschew responsibility. Anyway, hope you liked that. I liked it. I thought it was a good story. It isn't a ghost story, but it was a horror story because think how horrible it would have been. It was. A, it was an old-fashioned horror story. Modern horror stories have people having their insides ripped out and their heads bitten off and things. This was. This was a, a Victorian horror story, so it's not. As, not as horrible. I think it's nicer that we don't... I don't really like gore. Anyway, rabbiting on. Hope you're all well. I'm going to Wales tomorrow with my daughters for a few days and we're going to Aberystwyth and um, Imogen, Imogen's got a friend who lives in Llangollen and I said, listen, it's a, it's a long way from Llangollen to Aberystwyth. It's about a three-hour drive. 
uh, and she says, well, we'll meet in Welshpool at Trachlung. We'll meet there. And uh, I said, it's about an hour and a half. So it's probably an hour and a half each. I've got a funny theory about, and you, if you know Wales, you can test it out. So this is my theory. I lived mainly in Mid Wales and I used to go to North Wales. I don't know about the tourists in South Wales so much. But the tourists, the English tourists who come to Wales, they always seem to be a dem- demarcation line. So if you go to Llangollen and North Wales, they're all from Liverpool, all of them. I'm not saying some from Manchester don't come, but mainly it's people from Liverpool, which is fine. And then below that line, all the tourists, so in Aberystwyth is below that line, all the tourists from Birmingham. So I don't know why that is. Is there a kind of convention that, that you know, the good people of Birmingham and Liverpool got together and went, right, below this line, we will visit. Above that line, you will visit. We will not cross. So if we're from Birmingham, we are not going to go to Better Sequoid. And you, by heavens, should not go to Sandrine Dodd Wells. And there's some kind of agreement that goes on. I don't know. I don't know. My, uh, you may know that I, I, you know, when I lived in Wales, I, I, I mixed with people who spoke Welsh all the time. And uh, I remember we were going along the prom in Aberystwyth once. There was a couple of tourists there from England. And we overheard them saying, they're going, it's not a language, you know, it's just the gibberish they like to speak. So that insulted and incensed us. But uh, we were young and easily took offence. But now I think it's funny. Okay, and on that note, Nostar Paup. Yeah. Yeah, so I've I've, I've put some recordings in the bag, so don't worry. But, uh, of course, the other thing is, of course, when people are listening to these and they're going, and I'm talking about, oh, it's Christmas. To go, no, it's not, it's March. It's because I don't always put them out on the date. Oh, the other thing I need to say is my sleep radio for you to fall asleep to, which has got lots of rambling nonsense in, but also folklore, customs, books, all sorts of stuff. Go to my YouTube channel for Classic Ghost Stories Podcast. Look in the bottom, look for Late Night Sleep Radio. And if you want to hear it just as a podcast, you can go to your podcast, whether it be Spotify, Apple, you know, Podchaser, however you listen Late Night Sleep Radio, Tony Walker, boom. More rambling. Yeah, I've got to push it because I, I need to diversify my income streams. Anyway, I've got to go and see the dogs now. And Sheila, of course. And Sheila, of course. She's had a hard day. Isn't that so? Isn't that so? Isn't that so? Isn't that so? I invite you to consider becoming a patron of the podcast. Patreons perform a really useful task for me in that they give me the wherewithal, the finance through their contributions to enable me to devote time to producing stories for you. So it's actually really helpful if you want to hear more stories. And um, there is a big, on Patreon, there is a big backlog of stories, a big library of stories that you can access by becoming a patron you can download them as well which is more difficult on podcasts and on youtube but if you want to become a patron you get the double whammy of supporting my work which enables me to do more work imagine that you pay me to do more and i do more work for you and produce more stories for you which is and, and you know i appreciate it so you get my love and gratitude and also you get access to a big backlog of stories and members-only stories. Every month I do at least one members-only story. So it's kind of a really good thing to do. And I would just like to invite you to consider becoming a Patreon.
It's hard to say links, but this is www.patreon.com forward slash barkid, B-A-R-C-U-D. That's me. See you there.